Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are talking about part two of our climate denial episode, where Kristen and I deny climate change for two hours straight. (laughs) (laughs) It's a hoax. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. We're funded by the Koch brothers. No, we are not going to deny climate change. Uh, That would be quite a turn for us. uh, (laughs) Surprise! You've been punked. (laughs) Pop culture reference from like 2008. Well, I mean, we've been talking about the early 2000s a lot in the first episode, so it checks out. That's true. That's true. Big days for climate denial, mid to late 2000s. So yeah, last episode, we talked about sort of like the backstory about climate denial from like the 1980s to like 2009-ish. And then we started to talk about the big tactics that climate deniers use. So they can outright deny, they can deflect climate change. And then today we're going to talk about the last three tactics, which is dividing, delaying, and doomsaying. So, Kyla... (laughs) Having heard the tactics so far, what was sort of like the most surprising from part one for you, do you think? Probably the fact that the tobacco industry tricked all of us into forcing regulations on the furniture industry to make them flame retardant instead of making cigarettes less dangerous. <laughs> I know that has nothing to do with uh, <laughs> with the actual topic at hand. I just was absolutely floored. That was a fact that I was like, of course they did that, but I cannot believe it worked. Like, what a huge <laughs> thing to have succeeded that was driven by the tobacco industry. My God. But yeah, sorry, that's like not on topic. I just was, that's just my, that's just my favorite fact in the last episode. No, like truly, when I set out to do research for an episode on climate denial, I did not expect fucking Philip Morris, the tobacco company, to come up (laughs) as often as they have. (laughs) But here we are. Uh, But yeah, let's, should we talk about climate dividers? Yeah, so I'm interested to hear what this is exactly. Climate dividers, um, they basically use wedge strategies to sow division and discourse um, and discord within the climate community. So by sowing internal division, they basically aim to distract, disable, preoccupy, and nullify. So this is using something that's um, fairly popular called a wedge strategy, um, where you sort of drive a wedge between people in order to achieve whatever objective you want. So one really early use of wedge strategies was a tactic by the Discovery Institute, which was a religious organization. It might still be. I don't know. I didn't look them up. But they were devoted to undermining public acceptance of the theory of evolution. And in order to promote the teaching of creationism in schools, they actually appropriated scientific language by using the term intelligent design. And that was a wedge strategy that was aimed to divide the scientific community. So interesting. That's a really good tactic. That's that's a great tactic because intelligent design, it's a great argument. When the more you learn about the universe, the more you're like, wow, maybe someone did make this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like that's that's fascinating. Maybe someone did make this and we're in the matrix. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who knows, you know, or we're like a, a cell in a an even bigger creature. Like, I, you know. I like to think we're all like quantum wave functions. Um, I find that comforting. I'm just going to like dissipate at some point and form another wave function. <laughs> this might be like a bit of a, a bit of a like rant. I'll... But basically, I've been reading a lot about, like, I I like to uh, read about the solar system and, like, this new telescope that has gone out. They're like, oh, we can see almost to the beginning of the universe now. And I'm like, fuck, that's so cool. And then I've been reading about, like, quantum mechanics. And it's like, the smaller they go, the more they find. And it just seems like it's, (laughs) and, and the bigger we go in space, the more we find. And so it's just like, it's infinite at both ends. And so it's like, oh, we just it's it's unfathomable how big you can go and how small you can go. So, like, what's the point of anything? <laughs> yeah, I also like the idea that, like, nothing is really set until it's measured. I like to think that way about people's opinions, right? Like, people always have, like, a bunch of ideas floating in their head, and it's not until there's, like, some kind of news issue that they decide they've got an opinion on one thing or another. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, like looking at a quantum particle. It's my quantum political theory. <laughs> uh, you, you, know, you can be in two places at once until we look right at you and then you, you, you exist in one or the other. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways. Yeah. If I ever got a cushy tenure track job, I was going to pontificate about that for fun. But <laughs> here we are. So anyway, back to the, the issue of uh, climate dividers. Um just to remind folks, we're using that example of intelligent design as a wedge strategy, but it's been used in a bunch of other cases as well, and that includes climate change. Climate change initially was a wedge issue on its own, um, but now it really isn't. The vast majority of people do believe climate change is real, they do believe it's human-caused, and they believe that it requires solutions. So that means that climate deniers have to change their tactics, Right. Um, And climate dividers in particular have taken on a new strategy. So that is framing collective solutions to climate as like a big government power grab. So you might have heard things like, oh, they're going to take away your burgers and oh, they're going to take away your car, which personally sounds great to me, but... Yeah, yeah, that but I'm down for those things, but I can see why other people wouldn't be. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and in particular, if you're like a conservative or a libertarian... You're not going to love those arguments because you it presents climate action as being like, I mean, I think Pierre Polyev has like straight up used the term like power grab when he's criticizing the prime minister. So it's a, a good example of like the kinds of statements that conservatives make when they're appealing to people with those beliefs. Right. So it's an effective division strategy if you're trying to get right-wing people who believe in climate change not to want to take climate action. Yeah, which is so interesting because, like, it's something that, like, my dad, who's not a stupid person, would definitely fall into, like, a trap like that, where it's like, oh, I I think that climate change is real and I care about, like, this is a guy who, like, fucking loves going fishing and, like, adores spending time outdoors. And so it would be so easy to get him on side with the idea that, like, maybe we should have an environment where you can spend time outside. But because... He's not like seeing those issues as climate change. He's and he's living in a beautiful green space right now. For him, the idea of climate policy control would be, well, they're going to take away my burgers and they're going to take away my truck. And it's like, well, I mean, do you want to live in a nice green space? Like you can't I I, I hate to say it, but you, you you can't really have both at this point. You know, maybe if 10 years ago we had started working on climate change the way we should have, but now it's actually like a, it's at a dire critical point where y- yeah, I mean, I know that's a wedge issue, but it's also like not wrong. <laughs> no, completely. Uh, as a side note, I'm just remembering one of our very early episodes you talked about your dad trying the Beyond Meat burger. So I suspect that they're taking away your burgers argument would be maybe effective for him because he didn't like it very much. <laughs> I mean, who does? <laughs> like you go to you go to A&W and you get a Beyond Meat burger and you're like, Ugh. if I go to McDonald's, I get a meatless Mac, which is like, I would rather have no meat than a Beyond Meat. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> wow, I can't I can't express how much I disagree with you on that, but. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't like Big Mac sauce, so maybe that's partially why. Anyway, dividers, um, they seek to polarize. So in some cases, it's like driving a wedge between people depending on their ideological beliefs, like in the case of people who don't like big government. In other cases, dividers seek to polarize the climate community itself by playing up conflict among prominent climate activists. So in in Mann's book, he points to an article where... um, a climate denier misrepresented statements that he made to manufacture a fight between himself and Greta Thunberg, even though he made very clear in the book he has no issues with Greta Thunberg at all and was not in any way claiming that. But it's those kinds of things. Um, And they're attention grabbing, right? Like if you can get an article out there that's going to get lots of clicks, um, you know, claiming that there's some kind of big fight between famous climate activists, like that's going to, that's going to generate a lot of people's interest. Um, and it also serves to sort of like nullify climate activism by making it seem like this disharmonious um, like set of interests, right? But we've also talked about, in the last episode, we talked a little bit about personal behavior. And that's not only used as a deflection tactic, it's also used as a division tactic. So personal behavior often is a wedge that baits the climate movement into unproductive behavior shaming and identity politics. 
So one example of this is that a lot of the coverage of Greta Thunberg focuses on her personal behavior, um, and that has been used by climate deniers to create polarization, right? So they'll sort of like implicitly say, oh, Greta Thunberg took, um, you know, she sailed instead of flying, therefore she hates people who fly, therefore like she's not representative of people. And that's one way to sort of divide people. But then if she had taken a flight, they would have been like, oh, well, she's not a real climate activist because look at all of the carbon she emitted trying like getting to Canada, you know, like there's no winning. (laughs) That's the whole point of this, I guess. Yeah. And that's the flip side that climate deniers also divide by behavior shaming prominent climate activists like Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio to present them as hypocrites. Uh, So I don't know that you can win necessarily, which is one problem that I had with um, the way that Mann was arguing on this. But it is true that both tactics are used. Um, And one reason that climate dividers will attack scientists and activists for their carbon consumption is basically to undermine public trust in their message, right? So when scientists and activists then in turn internalize that criticism, so when they sort of hear, oh, I've got too much carbon consumption, and so they reduce it or take a no-flying pledge or something like that, that can actually roll over to create seepage into mainstream climate conversations that in turn sort of strengthens that personal responsibility narrative. So it's like something that not only divides, but it also builds on the deflection narrative. So it's a really powerful tool. So one... Michael Mann really did not like the Cowspiracy documentary, um, it was a, which is a famous documentary from like a while ago that argued against um, meat consumption. We reacted to the second version of the Seaspiracy um, on the podcast before, but Mann basically argues that this documentary deflected attention from the real conspiracy on the part of fossil fuel companies to confuse the public about fossil fuel burning. Then he he goes into this whole thing where he talks about like beef consumption is not that important of a topic. And he argues that vegan activists have been weaponized by dividers and deflectors for their cause. And I was just curious to hear your reaction to that, Kyla, because I had some issues. <laughs> I wonder if you do too. I don't know. I see I see the point. Like I never saw Cowspiracy, but I did see Seaspiracy, and it was not good and and like but also but also like it shared a lot of really valuable information and the imagery that was used in it w- was really powerful for me so like i i see i see the that it it was a good documentary i guess in like raising awareness but a bad documentary in that it suggested that the best solution is for everyone to stop eating fish and it's like well that's not actually going to solve our problems. So you just wasted an hour and a half of my time to tell me that, like, get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, I feel the same way. Because I mean, obviously, meat consumption is a substantial contributor to climate emissions. And like the animal agriculture industry overall is a big source of greenhouse gas emissions. And it arguably will never really be efficient to eat meat because, you know, cows are a middleman. (laughs) We could just get nutrients from plants and it would be much more efficient. So I I really buy into the argument that that like is something that we need to start talking about as a society a little bit more. But on the other hand, I have personally observed in sort of like climate organizations, vegan activists like (laughs) totally hijacking the climate conversation. So I'm a little bit sympathetic to this argument, uh, but I think maybe he takes it a little too far. I don't know what you do about disagreement, because disagreement is naturally going to happen on something as wide ranging as climate change and like how to address it. I actually just listened to a really good, uh, actually two podcasts uh, that talked about this idea of engaging more with people who disagree with you and like starting from a place where you where you agree with each other. So like my dad and I both agree that it would be great if we all lived in a place with lots of trees and animals. And so it's a, like that's a starting place if I'm going to have a conversation with him where I know we might not fully agree on like solutions because he he would be like, oh, government's, you know, overreaching. And it's like, are they if we're destroying the planet? <laughs> <laughs> I'll share the episodes that I list uh, that I was listening to in um, our show notes because I think it would be really cool for people to listen to how to talk to people who are going to have different opinions from you when it comes to these these tactics that Kristen is talking about here are 
stuff that we're going to have to contend with. And a lot of it can be solved just by asking more questions of the people who are throwing the stuff at you. Like, why Why do you think that? Oh, okay. Uh, what about this? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's the only way we can really fight this. But it's like, a, that's a slow way to do it because you got to do it one-on-one. Yeah, totally. I don't know. It's <laughs> It's complicated. It's called deep canvassing. Yeah. Uh, One other division tactic that I want to highlight builds off of all of the different narratives we've been talking about. But dividers, uh, in addition to sort of like fomenting division, will also use professional trolls to amplify those messages on social media. And then they'll use bots to further amplify it. So I guess anybody that's been on like climate Twitter knows how many bots there are out there. Um, And that's a real source of division because the aim is basically to like amplify a divisive message enough that it baits genuine individuals to join in. So it's something to be aware of. And that kind of builds into how you want to combat division. So the first thing to sort of think about is learn to recognize bots on social media. um, And first of all, report them as soon as you notice that there's somebody who's probably a bot. But for everybody else, be constructive and engage meaningfully with them, which I think is like sort of goes to what you were saying, Kyla. You want to meet somebody where they are, right? Yeah, exactly. So when you do encounter somebody who seems to be the victim of misinformation rather than somebody who's like promoting misinformation, try to inform them. Um, And one helpful tool you can use is skepticalscience.com. Um, And it's a website that rebuts major climate denier talking points. So if you ever like hear a talking point, you're like, oh, what's that? I've never heard of that before. This will give you a way to rebut it. You can also avoid wedges like behavior shaming, purity tests, and identity politics in climate conversations. So these basically weaken the unity of the climate movement, and they strengthen that personal responsibility climate frame that inactivists want to promote because it means not having to take collective action. One question that I had within that is whether there's a role for promoting individual behavior changes in climate discourse. Um, Do you have thoughts on that, Kyla? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. I think it's really important for people to change their behaviors personally. Even if you don't believe it's going to save the planet, it is a way for you to engage in a, a topic that's really important on like a personal level, right? Like, First of all, if everyone did engage, then the problem would be solved. <laughs> and then like, so like, I'll share an episode from um, one of my other favorite podcasts, How to Save a Planet, that they talk about this specifically, like, how much is does the individual action matter? And it's like, well, it might not matter on a statistical scale if there's not enough people doing it. But in my personal experience, anyways, I've been acting more consciously, especially while running this podcast for the last two and a half years. And I am a much more active citizen than I was before. So if what we need is systemic change by coming together as a citizens group, right, then being engaged with this on a personal level, I feel like educates people to the point where they might might be ready then to take the next step. Like I think it's the first step on a journey. I don't think it's the end point, but I think it's a really good starting point. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for legitimizing our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was something I was thinking about too. And I I completely agree with you. Um, I also think that like, if we're talking about personal behavior changes, I would focus more on positive frames than negative ones, right? So I agree with the argument that if you're behavior shaming, that's probably not productive and it's playing into climate deniers' hands. But positive frames to me seem to be like okay and actually helpful, right? Like making it fashionable to be vegetarian seems to be a really useful thing to do. You know, making, demonstrating that it is possible to live, maybe not totally plastic free, but to reduce your plastic consumption, that also seems helpful and okay. But we want to maybe stop short of behavior shaming. That I think would be my take on it. The other thing that I was wondering on sort of like the you know, man really wants people to stay away from things that divide the climate community. Um, and one of the things he highlights is like, you know, the this argument that like, we can't, we can't sort of call out Leonardo DiCaprio for taking like private jets or whatever, because he's done so much climate action. But I wonder to what extent, like, there is a role for class politics like that in the climate discussion, right? This idea that the elites are contributing to a significant degree to climate change. Is that like a fair thing to call out or is it counterproductive? What do you think? 
No, I think that's a fair thing to call out. If people stopped taking private jets, we would be in a better place. And I know I know Leo really cares about the planet, so it's surprising to me that he would still do stuff like that, you know? I think it's fair to recognize that somebody is doing a good job on spreading a message, but also to ask them to do better, you know? Like I don't think that is necessarily a contradictory thing. I think it's I think it's fair to be like, "Hey, I really appreciate what you're doing on X, Y, and Z, but maybe you could be better on A, B, and C. Like, (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think that it's ever going to be really feasible to have a hundred percent agreement among, you know, whatever the climate community is. So I don't know. I think behavior shaming in general is bad and we shouldn't do it. Um, But on the other hand, I'm still very anti-super yacht. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, I... Like, Leo, what are you doing, man? But I guess I suppose like if you're Leonardo DiCaprio famous, maybe getting on a public airplane is actually like a problem. Like, I don't know, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Like, we're not even saying don't use first class or what. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it's fair to point out that maybe there shouldn't be such a wide class divide to the point where some of us can take personal jets everywhere, like Elon Musk, like trying to skip traffic and going across town. You know what I mean? So like, I I, I think that we need to get to a point where that's a non-issue. And until then, fuck rich people. <laughs> Okay, so like in general, let's not behave. Let's not behavior shame people for taking a flight for a vacation. But like, it's okay to call out Elon Musk for taking a private jet to go half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's a good point. Um, and behavior shaming and sort of like focusing on individual action, even if it's something like um, you know a purity test where you're you're saying you know I'm a I'm good with the climate because I have a no flight pledge or because I don't eat meat or whatever. Um, So that can be a good thing to do sometimes. But there is some evidence that focusing too much on individual actions can erode support for climate for collective action. So it's important to just like keep that in mind when you're thinking about climate discourse and to stay focused as much as possible on systemic solutions when you're talking about the climate, especially on social media, just so that you're not deflecting attention. And when you encounter personal behavior wedges that focus on things like personal sacrifice, um, instead sort of turn the focus back to the costs of climate inaction. Um, And like, it is important to note that the cost of climate inaction is way greater than the cost of taking action. And that's true both like collectively and individually. So the sacrifice is going to be much bigger if we fail to act. All right. Should we move on to climate delaying? Or should we delay it? <laughs> no, damn it, Kristen. <laughs> I want to know now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Climate delayers, they essentially promote false solutions. And as a strategy, delaying aims to put off collective climate action by presenting systemic solutions as a threat. So how do you recognize a tactic like this? First, delayers will often promote legislation that's designed to undermine decarbonization. So that's especially renewable energy and non-emitting vehicle adoption. Those are the two big areas where they've been um, sort of promoting delay. So some examples of laws of this nature um, include, these are like real laws that have been lobbied for and or passed. So surtaxes on selling solar power back to utilities, repealing renewable energy standards, highway fees specifically for electric vehicles, and also bans on the sale of Tesla, which is like a specific thing that's happened some places. Holy shit. Like, wh- how? How in this day and age does does stuff like that get passed? You know what I mean? Like, gosh, but I, I guess we're living in like a post Roe v. Wade world. So like, <laughs> yeah, I think it's like weakened democracy is how it happens. <laughs> Yeah, so this kind of legislation, it's promoted by politicians um, like Senator Inhofe that receive funding from industry. And it's also promoted by lobbying from fossil fuel front groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC, um, which we talked about a little bit in the first episode. So in addition to promoting that kind of legislation, delaying can also take the form of what man calls crocodile tears, uh, which basically means overstating the harms of climate solutions like renewable energy Um, And especially those crocodile tears are going to focus on health and the environment because it plays into like the things that people are inherently thinking about when they're thinking about climate solutions. 
Um, so I'm going to go through a couple of these common crocodile tear arguments, uh, and you can just tell me if you've heard of them before. So the first one is wind turbines kill birds. Heard that one before? Yes, yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> just a quick note that in reality, more birds are killed every year by cats than by wind turbines. There are methods that can be used to reduce the impact of wind turbines on birds, um, and as well, birds, it, this should go without saying, but climate change is like a much, much, much bigger threat to birds than wind turbines. <laughs> but yeah, that's one narrative. Um, have you ever heard of wind turbine syndrome? No. <laughs> so this is, this is an imaginary health affliction that was made up by climate inactivists. There's no scientific evidence that it exists. But it's kind of like the argument that like being near a wind turbine makes you like vague symptoms inserted here thing makes you sick like don quixote like losing his mind and thinking that the wind turbines were or the windmills were giants is that is that the, what they're trying to say happens yeah it's tilting at wind turbines <laughs> but yeah so it's totally made up doesn't exist um but a lot of people think they have it um, a more subtle version of these kinds of delay crocodile tears comes from highlighting things that are actually valid issues um, regarding land and habitat loss from other forms of renewable energy. So this will often come up with like solar panels. So while these concerns can be valid, um, they're disingenuous coming from climate and activists, and they actually fail to recognize that fossil fuel extraction has a much, much larger environmental impact. So like, yes, producing and like putting up solar panels is not going to be like there is going to be some impact to the ecosystem where you're putting the solar farm or whatever, but it pales in comparison to like fracking. So most recently, um, the nuclear industry, um, an organization called the Breakthrough Institute um, that is nuclear industry related, um, has promoted the myth that solar energy poses an environmental threat. And I just I have to say this one because I think it's hilarious. So the Breakthrough Institute, or BTI, their argument relates to the supposed toxicity of photovoltaic cells. Um, so there are existing environmental and worker safety laws that act as safeguards against these harms, but there's something that BTI promotes um, in order to claim that solar energy is dangerous, whereas nuclear energy is safe. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm I don't know. I don't have an opinion on nuclear energy. We need to do an episode on it before I'll settle, but I that's that's an interesting choice. You know, that's an interesting choice to make <laughs> considering Chernobyl and and the meltdown in where was it? Japan recently? Like <laughs> Fukushima, yeah. I don't know. I just think we're not good enough at keeping infrastructure that was built in like the 1970s up to good standards. I don't know how we could possibly deal with something that has a shelf life that's like thousands of years long. I mean, I don't know. I don't know enough. <laughs> that's all I have to say on that. I, I think I'm, I'm actually fairly confident to say I am anti-nuclear. Um, I think that fossil fuels are maybe a more imminent harm. So I don't think we necessarily need to get rid of the stuff we have now. But I'm very skeptical of using it as the solution when we've got viable renewable alternatives, like genuinely renewable alternatives, because nuclear is not renewable. Another common crocodile tear that is shed is the energy poverty narrative. This is something you might have heard of, Kyla. It's this idea that promoting renewable energy will somehow divert resources from fighting poverty in developing countries. Um, is that something that you had encountered? No, but it doesn't make any sense to me because there's a lot of communities in developing countries that have completely bypassed the fossil fuel industry and just have solar panels on their roofs. And so I feel like, if anything, the <laughs> the renewable energy sector is lifting people out of poverty by providing power and ways for them to sell that power back into the grid. You know what I mean? Like, what a weird thing to say. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it is a common argument that's like, you know, the argument that like China or India should be able to develop with like coal power or whatever, because the West did. Like there's a certain fairness that I hear to that, but also we're all going to die and we have solar power now and it's good and we have wind power now and it's good. So let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Like just just skip the like like I get it. Like, yeah, it, like fairness. Sure. But like 
if we all die, then like, does fair matter? <laughs> you know, like, and as you say, we have really good solutions now. So there are communities all over the world that are skipping straight to the new stuff. Like, it's better. Why would you? Yeah. Why would you try to grow grow on old technology? That's silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, we want to start where you were 200 years ago and build up to where you are now. It's like, no, no, no. Take what we've built and and grow on that and then surpass us, you know, like. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, this energy poverty, I think it's a silly argument, but it is something that uh, Rex Tillerson, former head of the State Department and former head of ExxonMobil, uh, he has been an adherent of, as well as Bill Gates. Boo, Bill Gates. I've got one more crocodile tier, and it's a Canadian-specific crocodile tier. Uh, it is ethical oil. Have you heard that one before? <laughs> oh, my God. No. Tell me. What is ethical oil? <laughs> <laughs> ethical oil, put that in scare quotes, is the idea that we should forget about the harms of the oil sands because Saudi Arabia has a bad human rights record is basically the oh! argument. Yes. Okay. Yes, I have heard this. Right. So like, oh, people are going to consume oil, so it might as well be our oil because we're less evil. And it's like, I don't think that's going to be how it works, though, because everyone's going to just keep producing oil. Like, why not be the leaders in transitioning away, you know? (laughs) Jesus. Absolutely. So, yeah, ethical oil. What the fuck? I mean, that's an actual argument that I've been hearing a lot since the war in Ukraine started because of the natural gas problem where it's like, oh, well, we don't want to buy natural gas from Russia and Europe has been scrambling to find alternatives. But it's like, yo, fam, like, don't just switch to buying from Saudi Arabia or Canada. Like, get off of it. And 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 like, I know we had this discussion with, I think it was Rory, where he was like, oh, you can't just switch overnight. And I'm like, yeah, but we have to. We have to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're going to talk about bridge fuels in a bit, um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, totally agree. So delayers, in addition to the crocodile tears, they will also use deceptive facts and bad faith arguments to scare people into thinking that climate action will take their jobs. And that's not to say that like no one is going to lose their jobs due to the decarbonization transition. It is true that some jobs are going to have to transition And for some people, that might mean that, like, at least for a period of time, they're in a more difficult position. In Canada, something like 1% of jobs might be affected by this. Um, And that is why we need to have good job retraining and reskilling programs and a strong social safety net to ensure that people aren't left behind by the decarbonization transition. But the reality is that, like, decarbonizing is actually going to create millions of new jobs around the world. It's actually a huge opportunity from the perspective of jobs. And the reality is that climate delayers aren't actually interested in addressing these challenges. They don't actually care about the job losses from people in the oil industry. And like recent unionization efforts um, on oil fields and like union busting tactics, I think really emphasize that. We talked with Emily Leadham about that in our May Day episode. What climate delayers really want is to stop decarbonization so that they can reap fossil fuel profits. And they're often deliberately disingenuous about the role of renewables in, for example, the decline of coal jobs. And I want to I want to point to a specific example by a group connected to the Koch Foundation called Power the Future. Um, and they've blamed climate philanthropist and I think um, Democratic presidential nominee candidate Tom Steyer. I think he ran for the presidential nomination. Tom Steyer has been blamed for the decades-long decline of the coal industry in America um, by a lot of like right-wing climate deniers. So Steyer has been the subject of a lot of right-wing hate, and that partially centers around the idea that he's personally responsible for collapsing coal towns. And the like scare quotes proof for this is that his philanthropic spending occurred at the same time as coal jobs have gone down. That's like literally the proof. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, like, even if he was behind it, good for him. Coal sucks. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, the decline of coal towns is a bad thing. And like, you know, America does a really bad job of protecting the middle class when you have these kinds of disruptions. So I can understand why, like, somebody in one of these collapsing coal towns might be really upset by it. Their life maybe may have been made much worse because there weren't social programs to reskill them. There isn't a good safety net to make sure that they're like okay when they lose their job. So I can see how this would like a, an ordinary reasonable person would be really upset about this. And 
When an organization like Power of the Future creates the term Stayervilles and blames Tom Stayer for it, you can see how like somebody might be tricked by that and be upset by it. I suppose, but I guess it's easier to point the finger at one person than to point, like, because there's no one person you can point to to be like, this is why there's no social safety net in your country. You know, like, it's easier to be like, well, this person shut your town down instead of like, well, this entire party is the reason that you don't have uh, unemployment insurance or whatever, you know? (laughs) Like, are you sure you can't just say Ronald Reagan? Like, I think that might be enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, you got me there. You got me there. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, Ronald Reagan is who you guys should be mad at but he's he is a hero to the to the sort of people who would hate a person who shut down coal plants which is fascinating to me because like he's the reason that you're suffering now not the guy who shut down the coal plants you know if he even did it which it sounds like he didn't <laughs> well and also like let's be real i mean i think decarbonizing is a good thing but the decline of coal isn't even about that right like the decline of coal has happened largely because natural gas has become cheaper And so other fossil fuels are displacing coal consumption. It's not even like, you know, climate activists are taking your jobs thing. It's like a we discovered hydraulic fracturing. It made natural gas cheap. So companies want to do that instead of producing coal. That is the reason that you have like declining coal towns. (sighs) So, you know, anyway, this so the argument is like flawed. But like, I also just want to point out that in addition to being a climate activist and philanthropist, uh, Steyer is also Jewish, which I mention only because it's relevant um, because there are linkages between climate denial and hate groups, and there tend to be tinges of anti-Semitism in attacks against Steyer. He tends to be mentioned like alongside Soros. You know, it it seems racist to me, <laughs> or like anti-Semitic to me. And In 2018, uh, Steyer was actually the subject of, um, so there was somebody that tried to send 13 bombs in the mail to prominent Trump critics, and uh, Steyer was one of the people um, whom, like, one of the bombs was addressed to. So it's not just, like, he gets hate on social media, like, he's actively been threatened. So that's just one example of how climate delayers will sort of try to scare people into not wanting climate action. And so if crocodile tears don't work, if legislation that bans Teslas don't work, if these scare tactics don't work, delayers will then claim that climate solutions will not work by making overblown claims about the problems with existing renewable technology. And so two of those that you might hear are intermittency, like the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day, and also insufficient battery capacity. So neither of these are actually concerns. We actually already have um, existing technology that can address them for intermittency. You can have smart grids um, and you can sort of balance different types of fuels and battery technology is improving all the time. And some of it is actually outpacing fossil fuel performance. Well, and if we were transitioning to a point where we needed to have better batteries, guess what? we would be coming up with better batteries. They would have more money. <laughs> like, research would be done. Money would be poured into developing these things. It's like, like if they were growing on a global scale, of course they would improve. So, like... Yeah, and, like, even if we didn't come up with any new technology, like, even if we didn't innovate at all, if we're just using technology that's available right now, renewables could meet up to 80% of global energy demand by 2030 and 100% by 2050. So there actually isn't a huge need for fossil fuels to like serve as a bridge, except insofar as we're like delaying actually changing over the infrastructure. Yes, in the very short term, we we couldn't like tomorrow suddenly be totally solar. We'd have to build solar panels. We'd have to update grids. But by 2030, we we could pretty much do it for most energy demand. And, you know, the other thing to note is that a renewable energy transition will actually make life better in a lot of ways. It'll create jobs. It will stabilize energy prices because you don't have to, like, rely on fuel costs. The sun just shines. The wind just blows. It will reduce power disruption. It will increase access to energy because it decentralizes power generation. Like, if you have solar panels on different houses, it's going to mean that you've got more decentralized power overall. That gives more power to people. So... Renewable energy transition is actually a really good thing from a practical standpoint, in addition to its impact on climate change. So those arguments don't really work, but delayers are going to try them anyway. And after they've cried those crocodile tears, after they've claimed that renewable energy won't work, they then engage in predatory delay 
by presenting false solutions that don't pose a threat to fossil fuel. So one example of that is the idea of natural gas as a bridge fuel. So this is the claim that natural gas is a good bridge decarbonization because it produces half as much carbon dioxide as coal per watt of power generated. So this is a something that will be often cited, but it's actually a really deceptive idea, not only because renewables can already meet most of our energy demand, but also because natural gas actually isn't only a fossil fuel. It's also itself a greenhouse gas. Uh, emissions are generated not only when the fuel is used, but also when methane escapes into the atmosphere during the extraction of natural gas through hydraulic fracturing. So this is something called fugitive methane. And methane has been rising in recent decades, and research suggests that it's coming primarily from natural gas extraction. So you might hear a lot about cow burps, <laughs> but it's actually not farming or livestock that's causing most methane increases. It's natural gas extraction. And this rise in methane is responsible for as much as a quarter of global warming during this period. The bridge fuel argument is dangerous for that reason, but it's also dangerous because the reality is we actually don't have decades to spend transitioning. We have about one decade to avert warming beyond 1.5 degrees. So we have a very short bridge. A lot of the times this bridge argument is used to justify projects that are going to exist for 40 or 50 years, which is just much longer than the bridge we actually have if we want to sort of save lives and um, stop uh, climate change from really rolling out of control. Natural gas also crowds out investment in renewable energy, which is the only true carbon, uh, zero carbon solution. Another false solution that you might have heard of is clean coal. <laughs> Do you want to say what you know about clean coal? Oh my God, I don't know anything about clean. What's clean coal? <laughs> That's a good question. Doesn't exist. This is the idea that you can reduce coal emissions through carbon capture and sequestration. Um, it can also be called carbon capture utilization and storage. The reality is that clean coal technology doesn't really exist yet. Um, there is carbon capture and storage, but it isn't really scalable. It's not feasible to bury the billions of tons per year of carbon pollution that's produced by coal burning. It really is not a solution we can apply. It's also vulnerable to disruptions like earthquakes and groundwater flow, um, which mean that like you could have carbon that's sequestered through these methods that end up being belched into the atmosphere because like there's an earthquake or some kind of seismic activity or groundwater leaks into the area. In addition to that, it's really expensive to, um, to carry out carbon um, sequestration and capture. And coal is already not competitive with other forms of energy anyway. It's a dying industry and making it more expensive is not going to help. So the only way you can actually have viable, like, quote, clean coal is to subsidize it, um, which is just a terrible use of public funds. But that's the only way to do it. So clean coal, not a real solution. Not really clean, not really economically feasible. All right. Then there's geoengineering. That's another common one. Um, and this is the idea that we can intervene with planetary systems to offset the warming effect effects of carbon pollution. Have you heard of any like examples of geoengineering, Kyla? Like either in sci-fi or in real life? <laughs> I've heard the idea of like slowing down cl climate change by pumping a bunch of, uh, what is it, like stuff into the atmosphere to like reflect the sunlight more. Is that is that like the sort of thing that we're thinking of? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's going to be the first one, I'm, the first strategy I'm going to talk about. So that's exactly right. I'll first say, though, that the big problem with geoengineering is that we don't understand how the planet works very well. So the risk of catastrophic unintended consequences is very high with geoengineering. Yeah. Um, and that's like the big problem with it. So as you mentioned, one idea to cool the planet is to basically shoot sulfate aerosols, um, which are reflective particulates, into the upper atmosphere. And the idea is that it would mimic the way that volcanic um, eruptions cool the planet. So technically speaking, like, we know how to do this, and it wouldn't be, like, crazy expensive to do. Um, but the big downside is that it might cause major side effects. So, like, it could actually accelerate warming in some places by blocking the escape of heat energy from the surface. It could worsen droughts. It could accelerate the destabilization of ice sheets, so it could actually speed up sea level rise. Oh, and by the way, in case that wasn't enough, it could make the ozone layer bigger um, the ozone hole bigger, and it could cause acid rain. <laughs> so none of those seem good. 
Plus, it doesn't actually solve the root problem, so we'd have to like keep shooting sulfates into the air regularly or the effects would disappear within a couple of years. Um, and that would actually mean that we would experience decades of global warming in like a short period of time, which seems terrible. Oh, and if that weren't enough, doing this would also make solar panel solar power work less well. So <laughs> would actively oh. undercut climate solutions. Cool, cool story. Well, and also like, where do we get the sulfate stuff from? Is that just just another resource we have to extract? Yeah, I have no idea. Presumably. That's not the only example of geoengineering. Another idea is ocean iron fertilization. So this is the idea that you can sort of like sprinkle iron dust into the ocean to generate phytoplankton blooms. So like phytoplankton is a good thing. Phytoplankton take up carbon dioxide when they photosynthesize. It's like nice. Then they get like eaten by other stuff. So the idea is like you can actually create a carbon sink. So this is a nice idea, but it doesn't work in deep oceans. So it would mean basically that there's no permanent removal of atmospheric carbon. So it's not like a root cause solution. And it also might accidentally create algal blooms, um, which is a bad thing because it could create more ocean dead zones that like kill all the fish in an area, which is bad. Uh, <laughs> so you don't want that. There's also like an idea that I actually think is kind of cool. It's this idea of creating synthetic trees. So it's a cool idea, um, it's, but it's like not really ready yet and it would be really difficult and expensive. So one estimate is that it would be more than $500 per ton of carbon removed. So it's actually like way cheaper and easier to just limit fossil fuel burning and actually just planting like real trees is not- I was going like, to say- <laughs> Like that itself is not a great solution because the forests are turning into like carbon emitters <laughs> as a result of wildfires and like bug uh, pest infestations. But but it would be way cheaper than making up fake trees. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this is like wily e. coyote stuff, um, especially this next one. Um, another idea is putting reflective mirrors in space to seed clouds over the oceans. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think they did this in The Simpsons when was it Mr. Burns tried to block the sun? <laughs> Yeah, it's also something that's in a Kurt Vonnegut novel. I can't remember which one, but, you know, it's uh, very sci-fi. Um, would be geopolitically and ethically complicated because who gets to set the global thermostat? Question mark. We can't even agree on, like, really anything internationally. <laughs> so so geo geoengineering, it provides a crutch for our continued dependence on fossil fuels. It has a lot of potentially unknown and like catastrophic consequences that could happen. It is in a lot of cases would be more expensive than actually just addressing climate change. And in a lot of cases, it's not going to address the root causes. So you'd have to like keep doing it over and over and over again. In the best case, geoengineering solutions buy us some time. Which, you know, maybe at a certain point will be necessary, but right now we still have time to just, you know, act on climate change. And that would mean not risking all of these negative consequences and it would be cheaper. So let's just do that, I think. <laughs> yeah. So how do you combat these narratives, recognize these false solutions as the false solutions that they are, and recognize that they're predatory delay tactics? Last sort of short section is on climate doomism. So in contrast to most climate inactivism, climate doomsaying overstates the climate crisis rather than understating it. But it also promotes climate inaction because it portrays climate action as a lost cause or a hopeless fight. You know, this is a form of climate denial, um, and it's most often sort of like something that quite understandably, is expressed by people who are interested in taking climate action but are just feeling really disempowered. But it is included in climate inactivism because it has actually been stoked by climate denialists. And the reason that they stoke it is that climate doomerism breeds disengagement and it plays into anti-environmental tropes that environmentalists are alarmist. So man really wants to caution people First of all, against um, portraying the climate fight as something we can't do anything about because that leads people to just not do anything, and that's bad. But also, we don't want to overstate the harms of climate change because the real like climate crisis is bad enough, and we don't want to give climate denialists 
ways to sort of claim that we're henny pennies, you know, that we're alarmists that are overstating the crisis. We want to exactly state the crisis as as bad as it is. (laughs) Have you ever encountered climate doomers? Yeah, I would say that in my own circles, because I am fairly left-leaning on my own, I would say that's the number one issue, is that people feel disempowered, that people feel that it's already over, that it's hopeless, that there's nothing that they can do, that individual action doesn't matter, so why bother? That if I recycle but my neighbors don't, then nothing matters, so why recycle when I don't have the time or energy to figure out what should go in what bin? I, I think that's the number one issue of at least people my age. So like the so mo- like the millennial generation, I feel like. And, and it's gotten to the point where like the younger generation is like, <laughs> okay, doomer has turned into like, a, like the okay boomer, you know, like, 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 it's just it's the idea that that we we're not acting because it's easier not to and it's convenient to think that even if we did, it wouldn't matter. It's kind of a nice thing to end off on because it's something that I feel like anybody who's really concerned about the climate crisis has felt a little bit this impending sense of doom. Yeah. That part in Don't Look Up when Jennifer Lawrence like starts working at a liquor store and like fucks <laughs> Timothy Chal- Chalamet and like, <laughs> doesn't care. Um, so, but we're not at that point. Don't worry. We still have a decade and things are actually getting better. So what we want to do instead is to emphasize the urgency of the climate crisis for sure. Um, But we also want to emphasize agency when we're talking about the climate. So a good narrative to sort of put forward is that every bit of carbon that we avoid burning prevents additional damage and saves lives. And you can actually use the concept of a carbon budget as um, a helpful tool to explain this. So it is important to talk about climate change as an urban as an urgent issue, and it's important to talk about how climate change that it like dangerous climate change exists right now, and it is really killing people today. But we also want to remember that we have agency, and every time we act to prevent carbon from entering the atmosphere, we're saving lives, and we're saving animals and the ecology. Yeah, the David Suzuki Foundation has a number that they put out. Maybe you know this one, Kristen. I can't remember the exact percentage. I don't have a calculator in front of me. But basically, it's like if a certain percentage of a population, you know, takes to the streets and shows that they care about an issue, then that's that issue is like way more likely to be acted on to the point where like statistically it almost always is. And it's really low. In Canada, it would be uh, out of what, 38 million people who live here, it would be 1.3 million people. If 1.3 million people cared about climate change enough to demand change, then it would change. So if you feel like What's the point of anything? We don't need that many people and you just need to you just need to lift yourself up a little bit. You know, join join a a group that you think matters and maybe it's the David Suzuki Foundation or 350.org or like there's so many different great organizations that are doing really good work that you can volunteer with once a month or donate to monthly if you don't have the time to volunteer and whenever there's a protest for like climate Go, go to it. You know, take time off work so your boss knows it's something that matters to you and your coworkers will talk about like, oh, wow, this person really cares about this. It must be important. You know, it's it, it's starting these conversations. Yeah, definitely. It's super important. Um, be the person in your life that talks about climate change all the time because, you know, the more that's something that we have as conversations in regular life, uh, the more that, you know, people think it's an important issue that other people care about. If we don't talk about the climate crisis, we will not solve it. And that includes at family gatherings where you have maybe, you know, audiences that might not be as receptive. Because the reality is the tide is turning. Most people do believe climate change is real. Most people do believe that we have to do something about it. And the fight is really like, how much action and what kind of action are we going to take? And are we going to let the delayers and the the deflectors and the dividers prevent us from acting in time, I think is the big question. Yeah. And I mentioned, I think in the first episode, but the number one way to get people to change their minds on this is deep canvassing, which is just meeting people where they are, finding a space that you agree on. Everyone agrees that they like going for walks in the forest. Like (laughs) that's a universal human love. And so finding that thing that you agree on going, oh, wouldn't it be a shame if this disappeared? Or what, um, there was a really good 
episode that I'll share of a show where they were talking about this, the, the town of Hope in BC and how deep canvassing has basically led them to voting on building like a green initiative in that town, which is crazy because like it's a very conservative town that I think was relying on some pretty heavy emitting industry. Uh, but because people were going door to door and just asking like, hey, how have you noticed the town change in the last 30 years? And people being like, oh, yeah, well, there used to be like this green space and like now there's all these roads. And they're like, well, don't you think, you know, wouldn't you like it to be the other way? And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess I would. You know, it's like, Kristen, you were saying in the first episode, too, where uh, or was it this one? I don't know. Where like the quantum decision, right? Where people don't have their minds made up about an issue until you ask them about it. <laughs> and then and then they have to like, Schreud like Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I mean, I think the other thing as well is that a lot of people feel really disempowered by the climate crisis. And that's not just people who are sort of at the more climate activist-y end of the spectrum. It's also regular people who feel as though they don't have the capacity to act. They haven't seen government taking on powerful action. And also they're a little bit worried because the kinds of action that governments have been taking around the world have mostly not taken into account like protecting jobs and things like that. So like people see real risks in climate action, but they're not necessarily primed to see their own power in it or to see how a decarbonization transition can actually make lives a lot better. So that's where I think like projects that envision tangible solutions for people that like that envision how public transit or active transit could make people's lives better, how like regenerative agriculture or like rewilding could improve people's access to nature and make people's surroundings more pleasant, could reduce air pollution. I think if we focus on those kinds of solutions, we can sort of put people in a position where they see climate action as actually something that could make their lives better. And that to me seems to be an important keystone for action. Yeah, instead of telling somebody, oh, they're going to take your car away, be like, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to sit in traffic for 45 minutes every day? You know, like reframing these things is to point out that like actually your life would be a lot better if you didn't have to commute for an hour and a half each way in bumper to bumper traffic. You know, even in Edmonton, it gets like that sometimes. And there's a lot of space there. Building more roads isn't going to fix it. <laughs> Yeah. And like, doesn't it sound nice to work for a nice unionized clean tech company? <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? Oh, uh, yeah. And, and I would encourage everybody to check out the film 2040, which does envision it takes all of the cool technologies, well, not all of them, but like some of the cool technologies that exist right now and explores what a world would look like if we implemented them. And Kristen and I, I think, are actually going to watch this documentary uh, for a future episode. But like the listener, you don't have to wait. You can go watch it right now. <laughs> yeah, that is a great preview, though, for that episode. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love this documentary. I'm going to watch it with you and Robbie. And then you two are probably both going to be like, we hated this. But I am not going to back down. I love it so much. <laughs> I'm excited. I think it'll be great. Fantastic. Well, that's actually a really nice way to end the episode. And I feel like now that you've pointed all of this stuff out in one large dramatic episode, it it doesn't seem impossible to counter any of these things. It's just like a lot. It's just a lot of different tactics. <laughs> but it's cool to know, like, if you encounter this, you can do that. If you encounter that, you can do this. So thank you, Kristen. This has been a really educational one for me. Yeah, I'm glad. I also personally found it really uplifting because we've actually made a lot of ground. And I don't think I had really thought about it that way. But hard climate denial is like pretty much a lost cause. So, you know, suck it, Heartland Institute. <laughs> <laughs> if, if listeners want to reach us, you can get us on Pullback Podcast uh, at Twitter or on Instagram, where I've just co-opted the the, the pod Instagram is my own because I got locked out of my uh, my other one. So, you know, catch us there. Uh, or you can leave us a voice message. I've got a little thing down in the uh, show notes where you can you can send us like a hi. And, uh, and I'm excited to talk about like we've got some really cool episodes coming up for you guys. So tune in. And if I have a call, I have two call to, calls to action this week, actually. Number one, go watch 2040 if you haven't already. And watch it again if you already have. And number two... 
uh, tell a friend about our show. If you if you are a regular listener and you can think of like a person who maybe could use a little bit more climate chat or labor rights chat or environmental and not environmental. Well, yes, that too. But like animal rights chat in their ears, you know, recommend us. Recommend us to somebody. If you don't have any friends, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you on the next one.